And I just want to welcome uh, Josh Reed to go ahead and come forward as he prepares to lead us in our, our message. And as he's coming, uh, just a encouragement that we, we were talking to a couple of the youth and I this morning. We're just excited to have you and, and uh, just remember uh, with excitement you in the past speaking and we're excited to hear from you this morning. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Good morning. Good to see you guys again uh, today. Thank you for having us again. Uh, I got the whole squad here today, which is nice. Uh, sometimes we get to all come in tow and sometimes we don't. But when we do, it's more like descending when it happens. There's eight of us, so we, we don't just show up. We descend upon places. Um, so we're here and we're thankful to be here. Um, my father passed away in April of 2007 and uh, the last two, three years have really been a, a long reflection on things I've learned from him and just a reflection from our relationship. And, and I learned many things from my dad, but uh, one of the things uh, that we did before I moved here was we had partnered together uh, along with my brother in uh, just a, a company that invested in land. And my dad would, uh, ran a lumber yard with two of his brothers. My brother was a civil engineer and I was a, I was a banker. So we came together and, and we would try to do deals every now and then. But we, what it did was it provided a space to walk property a lot of times. And we would go walk property to see, is this, is this property worth investing in? Is it, what would be the best use of this property? Uh, and a lot of times, it, nothing would come of it. If, if you know anything about it, uh, you, you end up seeing a lot, of, a lot of deals that just don't look good. Uh, and I remember this particular track of land, it was about 13 acres, and it was right beside a track of land he and his brothers had developed for a 55 and older community. And, but we were walking this property next to it, and it was a rough piece of land. I mean, it was bumped up to uh, the interstate there in Buford, Georgia, and huge embankment, all kinds of wetlands on it. There's no way we were buying this property, right? But what it did is it provided space for me and my dad to spend time together, walking together, provided space to talk, to consider. Certainly, we were looking at this track of land to see whether or not we should invest in it, but there was a greater investment that was taking place that day. And I remember two things particularly about that, that day, and one was that was the first time I saw my dad in all his frailty. He was trying to walk over a piece of barbed wire fence, and he tripped and fell, and I'd never seen my dad like that. He was always the guy who could do everything. And he just kind of made light of it. But, it, you know, it was the first time where I think he recognized, at least I saw him recognize that he can't do the things he used to do. But the other thing that I remember, and I'll never forget this, it, we started talking about um, just business in general and life in general. And, and I was asking him, I was like, Dad, why didn't you and your brothers, number one, why did you go into business with your brothers? And number two, why didn't you guys do all these other land deals? You could have made a ton more money, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, Josh, it's certainly been ups and downs being in business with your brothers. Um, and certainly, we could have done a lot more deals, but we just made a commitment to only buy land from people we know. And these are the words he said. He said, Josh, I guess you just can't put a price on trust. He said, I guess you just can't put a real price on trust. Started reading the Bible again with a group of guys on Wednesday morning. Just been reading the Bible now for 17 years and just get to the end and start over again, you know? Get to the end, start over again. Get to the end, start over again. 
We started reading through, and, and we're, we're through the first 24 chapters of Genesis, and I was, I was thinking about and praying about what, what to preach here. Was, that story from my father came to mind because a phrase that I picked up on again that I've seen, but it just came in new light, was this phrase of walking with God. And you pick up on it in the first section of the Bible, walking with God. And what I've realized uh, again and again and again, but particularly this past month so far, 13 days, what is this, nine days, excuse me, is this, is that God is committed to partnering with people who walk with him to bring about his good purposes. God is committed to partnering with people who walk with him. To bring about his good purposes. We're going to look today at the supreme priority of trust. We're going to look at the surprising privilege of trust. And we're going to look at the sobering price of trust. We're going to preach today on walking with God. So if you will, let's go to the Lord and ask for immense mercy as we do so. Father, your word tells us, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in your ways. And as you show us in Genesis 18, your ways are ones of righteousness and justice. And certainly you will do what is right in all the earth. So Father, today... Meet with us here by your spirit. Open our eyes that we would see Jesus so that we can see what we were meant to be and meant for. And let none of us leave here the same way we came in. Make us more like him today as we hear from your word. Father, I pray that folks in this room don't merely hear my voice, but hear yours. My voice won't transform anybody. Yours causes the earth to tremble. Yours causes the wombs to open. Yours causes the waves to crash. And yours causes the hearts to be at peace. God, let us hear your voice. We're desperate. We long for you as the song we just sang. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you will, turn with me to Genesis 1. We're going we're gonna to really skip a rock across these 24 chapters. And I'm just going to grab... Some verses as we look at these things of trust and walking with him, walking with God. One of the most important things I've learned over the years, and I didn't pick up on this early on in my walk with Jesus, is that the Bible is one story. It's one story from Genesis to Revelation. I had always kind of treated the Bible as like a verse a day keeps the devil away kind of deal. And if I just like get a Bible verse or get a proverb or something and I just maybe try to incorporate it into my life. Maybe I'll just try to be a little better person. And that's just the way I grew up thinking what Christianity was. A verse a day keeps the devil away. You know, and when I came to faith in Christ at 24, something transformed inside of me, but I didn't, I didn't really have these categories. The fact that the Bible was this, this story. And not only that, but it was a story that God was sucking me up into and, and redefining my life and my story by it. And so in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and he creates the entire world. Now, I don't know about you, but my words don't create things. Pizza. I wish it could sometimes. Taco. 
You know, it doesn't happen. But when God speaks, he causes life to happen. That's what kind of power is that? God speaks and he creates. And, and what you begin to see unfold is this ordering of the creation in Genesis 1. You see this ordering of creation and God creates these containers and then he fills these containers. And then all of a sudden it culminates in this at the end of day six. And God creates humans. And it's out of it's not out of order, but he adds a little commentary. Look at this in chapter uh, one, verse 26. This tips you off. Something's important happening because it breaks the cycle that we just read through. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion. Everybody say dominion. It's a really important word when you're looking at the whole story of the Bible. Let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so here is where you see the trajectory for humanity. God creates this world. He, invite, he makes humans and then he creates them in his image. Now, the word image, think about you have to think about a, a couple of different ways. It's this word selim in Hebrew. And, and in many ways, it's it's this idea of an icon or an image. If, if you were to go to North Korea, you would go around North Korea and you would see images, statues, posters of the supreme leader all over there. Why? Because he's exercising his authority through these images. He's making sure everybody there knows who's the boss. This is why later on in the story, God says, don't make images of me. I already have one. It's called you. We were made in the image of God. It's totally different than every other aspect of creation. And what God is saying is he says, I'm going to bless you and be fruitful. And you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply and you're going to fill the earth with what? With my image. And I'm going to partner with you. Dominion, I'm going to partner with you so that you bring about the good purposes of this world with me. We're going to partner together in this. You tracking with me? You tracking with me? Because this is crucial to understanding why you exist. Genesis 1, it's all laid out. Flip over to chapter 2. We're going to see where the supreme priority of trust comes in. One of the beautiful things about creation is you see there's boundaries. Later, you're going to see in the story in the book of Job and things, God's going to talk to Job. and He's going to say, where were you at when I created the boundaries of the waves where they crashed? There's boundaries. There's boundaries in creation. And if you go outside the boundaries, it's dangerous. You begin to use things the wrong way. Well, it becomes an explosive environment to exist in. But if you keep things in the boundaries, God says, it'll be a blessing. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 1 is this panoramic view of creation. Chapter 2 is a microscopic view of the day 6 creation of humans. It's not out of order. He's just zeroing in on something really important. And that was the creation of humans. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. And to keep it. 
Uh, you could also define those terms to worship and obey. Same words used later in the Bible. Work it, keep the land, worship, obey. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. What's going on here? Well, you're seeing the supreme priority of trust in this partnership with God. He's saying, look, I'm going to partner with you, but there's something really, really important to know. If this partnership's going to work, you need to trust me, and I need to be able to trust you. I mean, that's how partnerships work, ain't it? It's how marriages work. It's how business partnerships work. It's how coaches and players work. If this thing's going to work, you need to trust me, and I need to be able to trust you. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 shows us just that. God says, look, I've made you for a purpose. But you got to heed my voice. For this to work out, you need to listen to my voice. If you had an opportunity to talk with and partner with the person who made everything, it might be good to listen to his voice, right? The supreme priority of trust is sitting right here in chapter 2. Now look at chapter 3, and this is what makes this perhaps the most tragic chapter in the entirety of Scripture. There's a rival voice that comes in who also knows the supreme priority of trust, and that through humans, God was going to rule the world and exercise His dominion and authority, and this rival voice comes in. And I want you to look at the nature of sin. Verse 1 says... Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God, uh, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Were they already like God? Were they already like God? Yeah. So look at the nature of deception here. It takes something that's true and turns it a little bit. That's what makes lies so tempting and tasty because they got a hint of truth in it. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, desired, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And just in case you think Adam gets off the hook here, he doesn't. The author says, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. So don't be blaming all that on Eve. Supreme priority of trust. And the trick of deception is, is the enemy comes in and says, but did God really say that? Is he really trustworthy? And, the, and, and this is temptation. This is the essence of temptation. Did God really say you can't touch that? Did God really say you can't look at that? Did God really say you can't cheat on your taxes a little bit and make a little money in your pocket? Did God really say that you, you just one woman for the rest of your life? One man for the rest? Did God really say that? See, the devil's only got one trick in the book, but he knows how to use it infinite number of ways. Did God really say? Did God really say? And now all of a sudden, look at the difference. Verse 8 in chapter 3 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
That just, what does that evoke? That, that, that reminded me of just walking with my father, walking that property with my dad. And just walking alongside me and my dad talking, you know, and pointing out things. Just imagine, it, it reminds me of Big Mike. I spoke to him last time. He's the guy that helped me learn how to garden. And when I walk with Big Mike in his garden, he's like, man, look at this plant. And he knows everything about that plant. And he knows what to do to make it produce fruit. And he's like this master gardener. I'm just walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day. And this, this relationship is being built up. And I'm learning from him and I'm listening and I'm talking to him. And, and it kind of it, it seems that that's what was taking place in the garden. But now something's different. When trust is broken, relationships are different. If you've ever been cheated, or if you've ever cheated someone, if you've ever wronged someone, if you disobeyed your parents, something happens to you internally, and something happens to the relationship. You're still in relationship, but the relationship has changed. It's shifted. And that's what we see when the supreme priority of trust is broken. But now let's look at the surprising privilege of trust. What you expect would happen was God would just strike them down. He said, if you eat of this, you're going to surely die. By the way, every time we sin, that's exactly what we deserve, is death. How many of you deserve death then? If your hand's not raised, you didn't hear what I said. Every single one of us. That's what sin requires and deserves. But what do we see? We see the surprising privilege of trust being pulled through here and God adjusting to unfaithful partners. This combats this idea that God just made everything, wound it up, and then turned it loose and just remained aloof to it. Well, oh well, take luck. That's a pretty common view, by the way, even to our day. It was much more common 17th, 18th century, but it's still making its resurrection a little bit today in our society, that God was just kind of wound, made everything, wound it up, and then turned it loose, and there's no involvement. That's not a careful reading of Scripture, by the way. It also combats this idea that God just sweeps in under the rug, that, does, that you know, they didn't die, so God's not really dealing with your sin, you can sin and get away with it. He's really like this benevolent old grandpa who doesn't really care what you do. Just, you know, he forgives. As Bertrand Russell said, that's what he does. It's his job. I think that's a cheap understanding of Scripture as well. No, what we actually see is God adjusting and then pursuing. You see it actually in verse 8. When God calls out to them in chapter 3, excuse me, verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called and said, and says, Where are you? Where are you? Did God know where they were at? Okay, yeah. He wasn't asking for information. What was he asking for? Accountability. Why are you hiding? And Adam and Eve had an opportunity to take responsibility for their actions. And you and I do every time we sin as well. And what you see is the nature of sin running rampant in the hearts of humanity. What's the first thing they did? Well, here's what I did, God. No, what happened? Well, this woman you gave me. So he, Adam had the audacity to blame his wife and God. This woman you gave me. She's the problem. What did Eve say? Well, the devil made me do it. They both had the opportunity to take responsibility for their actions. And the first thing they did was blame shift. When you're confronted in your sin, 
When you've wronged someone, what's your first response? Is it to take responsibility or say, you didn't really understand what I was trying to say, baby. You didn't understand. See, you didn't, really, you didn't have the whole picture. You didn't have the whole story. Well, they did it first. You know, <laughs> what's the response? And you see something really crucial here is that this is the nature of sin taking root in our heart. It's not my fault. And yet God still continues to pursue. That's amazing. This chapter should cause you to weep both in tears of pain and conviction as well as wonder that God would even come after sinners like this. And then he makes this promise, verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says, he pursues them, but look at this promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And if you haven't circled that, starred that, marked that, put a star over it, color it with a different color, that verse right there should be popping off of your page because the rest of the Bible is a really long answer to one question saying, who is that seed offspring who's coming? This is the verse that sets up the rest of the Bible right here. What, what's God going to do in response to the mess we've made? See, trust keeps the big picture in view. God keeps the big picture in view at all times. It's what the nature of a partnership does. If there's trust, he's got to keep the big picture in view. Because it gets really bleak really quick. Even in the next chapter, you've got two brothers. There's jealousy and one kills the other. That escalated quickly. It gets really bleak. But look at the end of verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 26. You see a break, you see something new, you see something a little strange, and it ought to draw your attention. It says, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And look at this verse, just kind of thrown in there. This little line thrown in there. Highlight this. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now why, after all this murder and this oppression of women in this chapter, and misogyny, going on, even in the early days. Why is this thrown in there? Because people began longing for what was lost in the garden. People said, something's not right. People shouldn't be killing one another. Women shouldn't be oppressed like this. They're not treated as property. It was at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And this longing began to rise up in people saying, something's not right. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. This is a glimmer of hope in the midst of some, some serious issues. But you also see it in everybody's favorite chapter 5. The genealogies. Isn't this your favorite chapter in the Bible? We're just detailing who, who, who was who, and they lived, and then they had some kids, and then they died. And then that person lived, and then they had some kids, and then they died. And that person lived, and then they had some kids, and then they died. That's your favorite chapter, right? <laughs> But here we go again, this, this chapter that's highlighting two things, the progression of the story and the reality of death. Look at what pops out with this guy called Enoch, verse 21. He lived, 
In verse 22, it says, he walked with God. It's the first time we saw this phrase. We've seen this phrase. Well, that's funny. Why is, what's up with this Enoch guy? And why doesn't any say this about anybody else? It says he walked with God. In verse 24, it says it again. He repeats it. Enoch walked with God. And what you should see here is then, then he died. But that's not what you see here. In verse 24, it says Enoch walked with God and then he wasn't. Or and he was not. Or he was not found. It says for God took him. <laughs> it's like God walked with Enoch and Enoch walked with God and then all of a sudden... He didn't die. He's just gone. There's only one other person really in the Bible this happens, and that's Elijah. He's taken up in the whirlwind. What's that like? You're just walking, and then you ain't one day. Like you, where'd Enoch go? I don't know. He's just gone. Methuselah's like, where's Dad? I don't know. <laughs> you seen him? Send out the search warrant. He's just gone. He would be on Unsolved Mysteries, you know, for, for our day. God just took him. Why? What was it about Enoch? We don't know. Keep reading. <laughs> That's how the Bible functions. Keep reading. And we see this phrase of walking with God pop up again. Let me ask you, do you know anybody who walks with God? I mean, who is somebody that stands out to you that, man, you know something's just different about them? I think of this guy named Danny Abraham I met in India. And Danny, Danny's a godly man. He walks with God. But I remember we were in a room, and he would wake up, and, and I would wake up at 5, 5.15, 5.30, and he'd already be up and been in prayer for like an hour, just communing with God. And it showed in his life, it came out in his life when he was oppressed, the way he responded, the way he treated the poor. I think of a guy named Bilal, who had been a Christian two years when I met him. And I'd never met anybody whose understanding of scriptures was so dense. He had been a Christian two years. I said, Bilal, what is it? And he grew up a Muslim. And by the time he was seven, he had memorized a thousand verses of the Quran. He had a pattern in his life set from another religion of what hiding a word in his heart would do and manifest in his life. And when the Lord saved him, it transferred over and he began hiding the word of God in his heart and began to walk in obedience to what he was hiding. And I'd never met anybody who understood the word and who was living it out like Bilal. And he had only been a Christian two years. Think of a guy named Ronnie Brassfield, who's an old pig farmer, chicken farmer, who God uh, really used instrumentally to, to lead me to the Lord and my wife to the Lord. This man had been broken down significantly had some really trauma and trials in his life in his late 20s and, and the Lord called him out of that spot and saved him and then he just spent his life he spent the last 30 years or so just investing 30 40 years or so investing in others he's a godly man he walks with God think of a guy named Jimbo down in Kinston who I've met recently there's there's something different about him you know he cares about his city he invests in the in the least of these you know, he walks with God, and you know it. Do you know people like that? Are you that person? When people think of you, walks with God. I want to be that man. I want to be that man. There's no greater honor than to somebody to say on your epithet, 
This man walked with God. And then God took him. You see it come up again in Genesis 6. With old Noah. And I want you to see how this pops up in Noah. This surprising privilege of trust. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That really combats this idea that people are generally good or people are neutral at best. And all you really have to do is just try to be a little good each day and hope your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds so that whenever you die, you know, whatever's coming, you'll get it in a good way. Genesis 6-5 flies in the face of that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound like somebody you want to partner with? <laughs> it says the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. This is the Lord lamenting and it grieved him. You ever thought about God like that? The grief of God? But look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. And then you see this pattern emerge in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And here it is. It says he walked with God. So you see this. He found favor. He's declared righteous. And he walks with God. See, the way Southern Fried Christianity would say is he was a righteous person, therefore he found favor. But the ordering of this is so crucial. This is not Southern Fried Christianity. This is the gospel. It says Noah found favor with God, therefore he was declared righteous and blameless. That's really different. It wasn't because of Noah's goodness that he found favor. It's because of God's goodness that he found favor. And his righteousness isn't talking about his behavior. The way the Bible speaks of righteousness and blamelessness, this is crucial to understanding the scriptures, is in who's in right relationship with God. This is what the book of Proverbs is all about. You've got the righteous and the wicked. And it's not primarily about behavior. It's about who's in right standing with God. This is why there's people who are far from God who are more than likely better morally than a lot of people who actually are followers of Jesus. According to some cultural standard of morality, it obliterates this. You, who, who's good? Who's good? No one. no one. It's exactly what the Bible says. Jesus said this. They're like, hey, good teacher. He's like, why you call me good? Only God's good. Either that's true or it ain't. And so the only way anybody can be righteous is in God's eyes is if God finds favor on you and you are made right with him. That's it. That's the only way. It's utterly out of your behavior. That's crazy. That's crazy. Everything else in our life says, no, 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 no. You, you achieve it. You do it. You, 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 you. It's all on you. It's all on you. It's all on you. But chapter 6, verse 5 says, every intention of our heart is evil from the beginning. 
So you see this quandary building. But look at this. He finds favor. He's declared righteous. He walks with God. And then verse 18 says this. God establishes his covenant. This is a partnership. He establishes his partnership with Noah. In verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded. So look at the pattern. He gets favor from God. He's declared righteous. He now walks with God. God establishes his covenant with him and he obeys God's word. That's a great pattern to look at because you're going to see it show up exactly in the next person, main figure, and that's Abraham. Abraham finds favor with God, chapter 12. He's declared righteous, verse chapter 15. He walks with God, chapter 24. God establishes his covenant with him, chapter 27, and he obeys God's word. You see this pattern. But here's a problem. Noah gets drunk off his own wine. And some weird stuff goes down with his son. Chapter 9. Abraham is a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And he laughs when God makes him a promise. What in the world is going on in the Bible? God makes these promises. He, he establishes his covenant with people. And they continue to blow it up. And yet God continues to walk with them. You see this surprising privilege of trust that God continues to bestow it upon people like Noah and like Abraham and perhaps with you. Look at chapter 15 just to nail this point down. You get some up and down with Abram in the chapters 12, 13, and 14. Chapter 15 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. And best I can tell, the best rendition of this says, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. If you've got the King James Version there, that's probably what it says. Mine says, your reward shall be very great. Verse 2 says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Abram, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And here's your verse in, in Genesis that, that tells you it's not your behavior that makes you right with God. Look at verse 6 here. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's the gospel in chapter 15 of Genesis right there. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God's word. Mind you, he's 100 years old when this promise comes to fruition. Imagine having a, a baby at 100 years old. That's some trust. Now, it ain't always good the next 25 years. He sleeps with a concubine, has another son, creates all kinds of other issues. It, it ain't pretty. And yet at the end of the day, God keeps his word to Abram. Genesis 3.15 is staying intact. But how? How can God just overlook this? How can God look at Abram, count his faith as righteousness, and then endure with him even when he blows it? 
Well, we actually get it in the next verses. I'm just going to read this, and we're going to end here on the sobering price of trust. We've seen the supreme priority of trust. We've seen the surprising privilege of trust. Now we're going to look at the sobering price. Verse 7 in chapter 15, he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? You see this walking? He's just walking with God. God, they're just dialoguing, doing life together. Verse 9, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. What in the world is going on here? We're losing a little bit culturally here, but this is an ancient uh, ceremony of establishing a treaty, of establishing a covenant. A lot of times kings would say, hey, let's partner together. And here's the stipulation of the terms. Here's my end and here's your end. Now let's cut these animals up, set it up on an aisle like this. You've got an aisle cut down the middle and you've got these dead animal carcasses over on the side and they walk in between them and that symbolizes the fact that I'm going to keep my end of the covenant and you keep your end of the covenant and if you don't keep your end of the covenant you're going to end up like the things on the side here. That's the ceremony that's taking place right here. That's the weird nature of it. By the way, that's where we get our imagery of a center aisle for a marriage. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is the book of Exodus, by the way, what he's talking about. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to you, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and then the land of these various peoples right here. What we see here is this. This is a dramatic and prophetic story of the price of trust. Remember what Genesis 2 said? If you break trust with me, you will surely, what? Die. That should be ringing in your ears when you see this picture right here. Because of the break of trust requires death. And it feels like death if you've ever been, if you've ever experienced that. And I want you to notice something really important in verse 17. Two things go through the aisle. Which one of them is Abraham? None of them. In that ancient treaty, the two parties would come together and they would walk through the aisle and they would make covenant together. But in this picture... Two things go through the aisle, but none of them's Abraham. In 
And if you were to fast forward this story to Jesus, the reason God can declare Abraham's faith to him as righteousness is because in Jesus you get the perfect partner with God. The Bible says that he was human in every way, yet without sin. He is the truly trustworthy human who can be trusted with women alone at a well. He can be trusted with money. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to the Lord what's Lord's. He can be trusted with power. And he leveraged it to bring people back from the dead and to heal diseases of bleeding women for 12 years. And he could look at a storm and tell it to calm down. He could cast demons out of somebody who's naked and in chains in a cemetery. He knew how to use power for God's glory. He's the perfect partner for God. He's completely trustworthy. And when the disciples came to him, they said, teach us how to pray. And he said, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in John chapter 17, he finishes the work. He says, I have accomplished the work you gave me on this earth. He says he's finished it. This is before the cross, but there was only one thing left. And he does the unthinkable. This promise from Genesis 3.15 is literally hanging in the balance when Jesus is hanging on the cross. What in the world is going on? It's God passing through the cost of distrust and taking on and absorbing the guilt and the shame and the price of it. He, he becomes a human in order to pay our price for breaking trust with God. This is why the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's God showing us the sobering price of trust. And he's showing us today. But it's also God paying the price for breaking trust with him. It was hinted at Throughout all of Scripture, it was hinted at in this Genesis 15 story, and it was exercised when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And if you take that in, look at me, that'll change you. That'll change your life. When, that's what undeserving grace does when you take it in. It transforms you. I remember six months in after becoming a Christian... And I had this overwhelming burden to confess sin to my parents. I had wronged them in so many different ways. And I was so nervous to sit down with them. We sat down at the dinner table. And I looked them in the eyes and I just began confessing everything I could remember, you know, that I knew I had sinned against them. And I was utterly in their hands. They could have cut me out the will. They could have kicked me out the house. They could have said, how could you? How dare you? And perhaps in the most surprising thing that I could even imagine, they looked at me and said, Son, we forgive you. We forgive you. You know what happened? That forgiveness got in there and it began to mess with me. And trust 
was reestablished with my parents. And over the trajectory of the next 12 years, 14 years, 15 years, even now, 17 years, the relationship has grown like we never have before. That's what surprising grace does, is it changes your life and redirects you for a better purpose. Have you experienced that with God? Do you walk with Him? Are you in partnership with God to do His will? This is what Christianity is. It's what it is. It's nothing if it's not that. And so the the first step is conversion. Jesus literally says you must be born again. Nobody's born into Christianity. You don't waltz your way into Christianity. Conversion must take place. God taking this sinful heart out and putting one that fills in. That's the Holy Spirit that comes now and dwells inside of you when somebody turns from their sin, acknowledges their guilt, confesses their need, and then trusts that God has provided this Savior. He's provided them, provided you, a direction now. Because He doesn't just save us and take us right to heaven. Why? Because He's called you to walk with Him. He's got an image now that He wants to leverage for His glory so that people encounter Him through you. This is why J.C. Ryle, pastor from the 18th century, says the greatest gift you can ever give someone is your personal holiness. The greatest gift you can give someone is your personal holiness. And that's how you're salt and light. God now through us, imaging forth himself in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your church, in your school, in every aspect and sphere of life. Because God is committed to partnering with people who walk with him to bring about his good purposes for creation. Let's pray. Father, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. And that's our great hope. That you're the kind of God that we don't simply have to appease, but you're the kind of God that draws near, that corrects, that definitely issues consequences to sin, but then rebuilds and gives deep grace to transform us to become more like Jesus. So now, God, as we sing and we open up these stairs here for people to come and pray and respond to your word, God, would you do it? If you've been bearing down on someone, not only today, but in the previous days, weeks, maybe even years of just a guilty conscience, because just there's not enough we can do to fix our our relationship with you, God, would you release them today? We sang about it. I'm free. I'm free. Would you call somebody to be set free today? Free from the tyranny of religion into life with you. And God, perhaps for some who have experienced that grace and who have been born again to a living hope, perhaps today, Father, there's a, there's a sense of needing to dig deeper and commit to understanding your word and walking with you 
in the coolness of the day. God, would you stir and give the strength to do so. And Father, for those that walk with you, would you give them the courage and the strength to look at others and say, follow me as I follow Christ for the rest of their lives, God. I'm amazed, Lord. I really am. I'm amazed that you would see fit to partner with sinners and purchase the costliness of distrust. And so, Lord, put it deep in and start agitating each one of us today so that none of us leave here the same way we came in. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.